0: There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com prologue to learn more. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 scientifically validated strains for whole-body benefits, engineered for maximum delivery to your colon, helping to support a healthy heart, maintain optimum cholesterol balance and lipid metabolism, as well as reinforce an optimal gut-skin access to promote clear skin. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell the managing editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Whether you love them or are frightened of them, you cannot deny that snakes are fascinating adaptable creatures. They're found on every continent except Antarctica and occupy all sorts of habitats from deserts, to swamps, to forests, to oceans and trees. So to find out even more about snakes, I spoke to Mark O'Shea, a professor of herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton, who told me more about how snakes move, why we have so few species in the UK, and
1: how venom works. I'm Mark O'Shea. I'm Professor of Herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton. I've been doing research on reptiles for many decades. I spent 33 years as curator of reptiles at Westminster Safari Park. Um, I had my own TV series on Animal Planet Channel 4, Discovery Channel, for five years. I've authored, I think, eight books. I think there's, a, there's ninth. I am just finished, and I've worked on on a lot of reptile surveys around the world. I've worked on every continent except Antarctica, and I've been involved in snakebite research as well. And that was probably the main thing for in behind my MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in twenty twenty.
0: So, I'll probably start with the basic questions. Then, how many species of snake are there?
1: This is obviously, um, in flux because taxonomy is a, is always in a state of flux. When I was a child, I looked up some numbers for when I was a, a child, in, when I was in the sixties and there were. The figure that everyone bandied about then was 3,200, and it's gone up considerably since then. My count at the moment is 4,032, but other people would have slightly different counts if whether you recognise a particular species or whether you've seen a paper that's just been published. We described three new species earlier this year and raised three from synonymy where they'd been sunk, so we added six. Papers coming out describing a couple more. And and to be honest, whereas in, in the 80s there, there were only like 11 new species of snake being described every year, in the 70s probably about eight, now it's many more. And in, in 2020, 2022, 45 species of snake were described, 2021, 67. And this is really down to the fact that there's now the molecular techniques which enable you to distinguish between morphologically similar species or species that are spread over a, a wide area that look different at the two ex- extremes. They may actually be the same species. So the molecular techniques sort of support or question the data you get from morphological examination of specimens. So it's an ever-increasing ever number, but it's never been more important to understand biodiversity because you can't conserve species unless you know what they're called, because you can't draw up legislation and put them on any protected list unless they've got a name. So it's really important now to name and describe new species.
0: And what's the biggest species of snake out there at the moment?
1: The biggest? Well, I was asked this question, well, I've been asked it several times, but I was asked it by a TV company back in the mid-90s. What's the largest snake? I said, well, do you mean length or weight? And... They settled on weight. The longest snake in the world is a reticulated python, and there's been stories of how big they're going to get, and 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 people have talked about thirty odd foot. But yeah, nine ten meters, but they're not massively heavy. A really big female, because the females are larger. I mean, boas and pythons. She might she'd be seventy five kilograms. Now anacondas are, are not as long, and the female anacondas might get to eight meters. Often quite less less than that, but they could be hundred kilograms because they're a, an aquatic snake, and so the water supports their weight. And and when I when I was asked that question, they said, "Oh, we'd, we'd like the heaviest anacondas." And I said, "Okay." And they said, "Where'd you find them?" And I told them that I knew somebody with a massive ranch in Venezuela. And they said, "Well, if we sent you out there with a film crew, could you guarantee to catch them?" And I said, "Oh, yeah." And I went out and I caught 32 Um, and the largest was, um, 18 feet long and, um, two stone heavier than me. Um, I got three over 15 foot long. Big aquatic snakes, but you find those in the dry season because they congregate in the water, the smaller watercourses. And
0: but how do you catch such a big snake like that? Do you just have a stick or a sack or or what? yeah, it's
1: it's normally a two man job, but we were finding so many it was ending up as a one man job. With anacondas, it's quite an interesting approach because most snakes you look for in the wet season, beginning of the rains when they start being active and they're hunting and things like that. But anacondas are much better sort in the dry season when, as I say, they're congregating in, in the lagoons as they shrink, and they might estivate then in the mud or, or try and get over there into the, to a more permanent watercourse like, like a river. And what you do in the, in the lagoons, all around the literal vegetation of the lagoons, you've got a mat of vegetation, which is a bit like a, a waterbed, really. It's vegetation on the water. And the water, the, the open water is quite warm. It's bath warm, but the water underneath there is a bit cooler. And what you do is you walk around on there. Um, you can do it with boots on, you can do it barefoot. But you're feeling for the snakes, and you're prodding, prodding, prodding. And if if there's an anaconda under there, it starts to go a bit like a waterbed, and and it's, it's working out where it's going, getting up to the front end, and getting hold of the head, and 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 pulling it out. And you don't know how big it's going to be until you do that, because you can't see it. Um, but that's the approach with with anacondas, pythons. Well, you'll you see them; they'll call defensively in this case of trying to catch them without they getting constricted. And, and a really, to be honest, t- it, it would be very foolish for an individual person to try and capture a large reticulated python because they're, they're you know, easily capable of, of killing a human and constriction is very fast and it's not the crushing of bones, nor is it suffocation. It actually, the coils are so tight, they stop your circulation and you die of a heart attack. And it can be very fast, surprisingly fast. Constriction kills quickly. It's you don't have much time to f- to deal with it, and you won't get the coils off. So, so a really really large python, it's much better to stand back and admire it, unless there's, there's a group of you capable of dealing with it. Because they, and then you got to say, well, why catch it? You've got to have a reason if you're going to catch it. If if you want to find out its length and weight and so forth, but but sometimes it's just nice to stand there and watch the animal and see what it's doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. So at the other end of the spectrum then, what's the smallest species of snake?
1: Well, obviously that's quite a difficult question because you could have the smallest species, but a baby of another species as, as an adult is is smaller because babies are obviously smaller. But as an adult, the Barbados thread snake, and I, I got a measurement of 104 millimetres.
0: Which country has the most species of snake then?
1: Well, in that case, for the if you want a country... With a large number of snake species, you need a large country with diverse habitats, mountains as well as lowlands, etc., etc., etc. And the nearer the equator it is, obviously the potential for higher diversity there. And I, I worked out some numbers for this because it's always changing, and there are only bucket science numbers because to sit down and literally go through everyone and determine if it's in that country or not is is a huge it's a huge thing but but um figures i've got i've managed to work up from mexico 447 brazil 437 so both near tropical countries uh, on opposite sides of of the equator China, three hundred and twenty, a very large country, a lot of it temperate, some of it quite cold, but still got a lot of habitat. Uh, Australia, two hundred and twenty-nine. That's a figure that could easily be checked. That that you just pick up a guide to Australia and count them. And in Africa, Democratic Republic of Congo is a massive tropical country, and I've got around about two hundred species for there. So so that's that's um, that gives you an idea of the biggest countries. But at the other end of the scale. Obviously, New Zealand and Ireland have no snakes. There are three native snakes in Britain, the grass snake, the adder or viper, and the um, protected smooth snake, which is in the southern counties, plus one introduced species, the Oscalapian snake, a European rat snake, which is found um, in two colonies, one in North Wales and one on the Regent's Park Canal in London.
0: So what is it about like the UK that means we have so very few species of snakes?
1: The British Isles are on the northwestern fringe of Europe and were at one time attached to Europe by land bridges. The land bridge between Britain and Europe was um, in the southern North Sea, eastern English Channel. And that permitted a lot of species, not just reptiles, but a lot of species, mammals, etc., cetera, to, to spread into Britain and establish themselves. And when those land bridges were broken, that put an end to immigration and emigration from the British Isles. It's the same way humans originally got here, early man got here was across the land bridges. Now, the Irish Sea, I believe, that land bridge was broken earlier, And so snakes didn't get to Ireland. It it has nothing to do with St. Patrick. It is to do with Ireland biogeography. And when you look at the distribution of snakes in Britain, you see that the smooth snake, which is our most endangered and protected species, is only found in the southern counties. And it it likes particular habitats like southern Heathland, which are peculiar to that, that part of the country. And it's not a rare snake in Europe, but... It's that's just it just got into Britain in that small area as the ex, the sort of western extent of its European range, which is then broken, and therefore you've got this isolated and potentially threatened population. Grass snakes occur as up as far north as southern Scotland, while our only venomous snake, the adder or viper, the northern adder is generally what it's called. That'll occur right the way up to the tip, of northern tip of Scotland, and on some of the inner Hebrides. And the reason why that's distributed so widely in the grass snake stops in southern Scotland is down to their reproduction, because grass snakes lay eggs. They lay them somewhere nice and warm, like a compost heap or something like that, and then they leave them. The eggs are then at the vagaries of the weather. And where you could get very cold climates, as northern Scotland, it's quite possible the eggs would not survive Whereas the adder is a live bearer. She doesn't come out if it's cold. She comes out and moves around when it's nice and warm, and she can move around with the sunspots and basket, and and she's a mobile incubator. And so she's much better adapted for cold climates. And the northern adder is actually the northernmost distributed snake in the world. It's found well north of the Arctic Circle in Norway, Sweden, Finland, and the Kola Peninsula of Siberia. So it it is well adapted for cold weather because it's a life bearer and it's it's a northern species. But the disadvantage of this is that it probably is going to be threatened by global warming. As um, Britain warms, it becomes less suitable for the adder. Uh, and would be more suitable for one of the more southern viper species from Europe. But that's basically, in a nutshell, why we've only got lo- those species and why they, their distribution is as it is.
0: So snakes can occupy all kinds of habitats. Now, can you explain some of the different ways that snakes can move? Because they've got quite a good range of locomotion, haven't they?
1: There's four or five. There's the, the classic way you see a snake crawling away with serpentine motion. You'll see a grass snake swimming with its head up, doing exactly that, that sort of serpentine motion everyone's familiar with. But there, there, there are other means of locomotion. There's a, there's a concertina method whereby heavy-bodied snake, some of the burrowers do this, like the shield tails in Sri Lanka. They will push the head forward, anchorage, draw the body up, and it's a bit like a concertina, a musical instrument, drawing themselves forward and then on again and drawing themselves forward. Then there's rectilinear motion, which people call caterpillar crawl. And you can see this in really heavy-bodied snakes that, that are too heavy to be throwing coils to either side, like a lightly built snake. If you watch them move, they're in a a dead straight line and they just wobble along and you can see waves of contractions going down the body as the the intercostal muscles move the ribs forward and then the next set and the next set and the next set. And and it does look as if they're just crawling, wobbling along the ground like a caterpillar. These modes of locomotion are only possible because snakes don't have a sternum. I mean, that's a really important thing about a snake. And I'll come back to that in a moment um, because because that, that is quite interesting. But if they'd got a sternum, a breastbone, the, the ribs and the and the, and the muscles would be attached to that. And they wouldn't have the mobility that they do have of moving their ribs independently, which we can't do because we've got a sternum. Then there's sidewinding. Anybody who's tried to run up a sand dune knows it's not very easy. and And it's the same for snakes. And so sidewinders... Go across the sand diagonally, and what they're doing is lifting their body, making an anchorage, then bringing their body over, lifting their body, and making an anchorage. And they leave J-shaped tracks in the sand, and you can follow these. I mean, I've followed them in North Africa, in Mauritania, in the in the Arabian Peninsula, and found the snake at the other end as as they've as they've sidewinded across. and And there are sidewinding snakes in most of the deserts. There's one. There's the sidewinding rattlesnakes in southwestern USA, north Mexico. There's the Namib sidewinding viper in southern Africa. There's the sand vipers in North Africa and, and Arabia. There's Mahone's viper in uh, on the Pakistan-Afghan border in the, in, the, in the deserts. There, they all use this same form of locomotion. They've all evolved it um, independently as a means of traversing a very difficult terrain. And then there's climbing. Some, if you look at a, a, a lot of snakes, some snakes are if in cross-section, round, but others are arch-shaped in cross-section. Things like rat snakes, the common corn snake that people keep. And if you look at the underside, the, the big, broad belly scales have a ridge down either side of them. So that makes them sort of – gives them a little corner, if you like, at the bottom. It's a, like an arch shape. And when they're climbing a tree, they can change them from – they change their body shape in cross-section from an arch to a bell. They can actually push those little corners into crevices and go straight up. Some of the tree snakes can go straight up a palm tree. All the little um, imperfections and gripping them, and it's quite phenomenal. Whereas a big python climbing a tree, it uses constriction. It puts the coils around and the coils around, and it moves coils forward and goes up a tree equally as fast. And then there's leaping out of trees and gliding. And again, this is where I'll talk about the, the ribs snake has got hundreds of ribs, but no sternum, no breastbone. So that means that a snake can move its ribs ribs independently of each other and independently of the ribs on the other side. So if they've got the intercostal muscles between the ribs, they can obviously manipulate how their their ribs are. And and that's obvious, you can see it in, in, in the rectilinear motion as they crawl along the ground. That's also useful for a cobra spreading a hood, so the ribs expanding. It is also useful... For a a snake that wants to bask, maybe a female snake, a female viper that's got embryos inside, she can spread her body flatter and provide a larger surface area to the sun to warm herself up. Um, A snake that's eaten a large meal or is carrying a number of eggs, again, the ribs can expand outwards a bit to allow the body to be broader to encompass either the eggs or a big meal, sometimes a huge meal. And this is all part of why of, of the uh, um, white, sternum possibly is not a great adaptation. And when you come to the gliding snakes, the, the five species of flying snakes, which don't fly, of course. Flight is the preserve of the bats, the birds, and the insects. They glide. They come down. They don't go up again. They can't take off and go up. But what they are doing is spreading their ribs to create concavity in the belly. And so when they leap, it's like a parachute. And they can control the speed and direction of descent by changing their body shape slightly. And again, it's only possible because they don't have a sternum. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person and I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now
0: that's really cool. So we talked a little about constriction earlier um, and you explained that it's a heart attack that will cause you to die from constriction. Now other species of snake will use venom. So what is venom made from?
1: It's, it's a, a complex cocktails of enzymes and proteins and it is complex because it contains many different types of proteins and enzymes and a particular snake very often doesn't just have one kind. It'll have a cocktail, and it is like mixing cocktails. To give you an idea, okay, neurotoxins that attack the nervous system, the cause of death is respiratory paralysis, but they cause paralysis of a lot of other things. Early signs atosis: You can't lift your eyelids. You, you look like you're drugged. Uh, you get blepharosis. Your, your, eye, your, your eye can't follow a finger. You can't move your eyeball. You get flaccid facial paralysis. That so you can't smile. You find that it's difficult to swallow saliva and things like these are all early signs of, of neurotoxicity, which ultimately, if untreated and there's enough venom, lead to respiratory paralysis and death. But the two neurotoxins go about it in different ways. Well, the two families of neurotoxins, if you like, the presynaptics and the postsynaptics, go about it in different ways, and it's quite interesting now. If you remember biology classes, when a message travels down a nerve, it's a change of polarity, plus and minus, all the way down the nerve, and then it comes to what's known as a synaptic gap, and and it's it's a junction to jump to the next nerve, and for the message um, to jump to the next nerve, you have to have a product called acetylcholine injected. From the sites on the upstream nerve into into the synapse, so that the message can cross over and carry on down the next nerve. And then something called acetylcholine goes into the synapse to uh, stop the effects of the, ac- of the acetylcholine. Otherwise, um, you're just going to have spasm. You're going to, the message. You're going to keep keep travelling. Now, with a postsynaptic neurotoxin, what the venom does is it gums up the receptor sites on the downstream side of the synapse, like sticking chewing gum in a lock. You can't put the key in and turn it and you can't open the door. That's all it does. It blocks them up. Now, if you administer, and and a lot of cobra venoms are like that, and if you administer anti-venom, it will basically undo the damage quite quickly. Um, Even if a patient is moribund, it can really turn the patient around quickly. A normal service will be resumed and the messages will continue to pass down the, uh, down the nerves. But what a pre-synaptic neurotoxin does is different. That's on the transmitter sites, on the upstream side of the synapse. It doesn't block them. It destroys them. It digests them. And if it has done a significant amount of damage... No amount of antivenom is going to reverse that. Nothing's going to reverse that until the transmitter sites have regenerated, which could take several days, during which time the victim can't breathe and would need to be ventilated either on a, on a ventilator, intubated in, in a hospital, or ambu-bagged, or mouth-to-mouth for three to four five days that's not feasible so that's the problem so you've got two different neurotoxins and they actually do completely different things because they're actually not similar um, in in their composition then you've got amongst the, the blood toxins the the, the uh, hemotoxins uh, you've got procoagulants that cause um a lot of clotting you've got anticoagulants that prevent a lot of clotting and cause bleeding but they actually end up doing the same thing now, a procoagulant venom that causes clotting, when the snake bites its prey and injects the venom, it will cause a lot of blood clots in that prey and it will die and the snake will follow it and, and eat it. When that venom's injected into a human, the same amount of venom, it'll cause a lot of microclots in the blood. But your body then breaks those clots down and it'll form more and it breaks them down. And this carries on until you've got no clotting factor left in your blood, whereupon you become super haemophiliac in effect. Um, you can't clot. So then, if you cut yourself, you bleed. And when I've had a uh, 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 bites with with a venom like this, just ha- when they've just taken blood for a blood sample from me, they've ended up holding the thumb over the the puncture wound for like forty minutes because I won't stop bleeding. Now, add into that, some venoms are hemorrhagic. They put holes in your blood vessels, so that you bleed like a sieve. You can bleed to death internally without any external, and of course cranially you could have a, a stroke and then you've got the hemolytic venoms that actually destroy the red blood cells and all the all of the destroyed red blood cells end up going to your kidneys and blocking up your kidneys and causing you renal problems that's blood and, and nerves now you've got cytotoxins that destroy tissue now fewer of these cause death but they they they, they can they can lo- you can lose limbs and spend a lot of time having to have skin grafts for the rest of your life so so that's another, you know, puff adders can inject, that is designed, a baby puff adder feeds on lizards and it has neurotoxins in its venom that knocks out the lizard before it gets very far and the, the baby puff adder eats, the, finds and eats the lizard, but the adults are feeding more on rats. So they, they, they need to speed up the digestive process because a snake with a big meal in its stomach is vulnerable to being killed itself. So the cytotoxins di- speed up the digestive process. And what might take a boa constrictor that's non-venomous five or six days to digest, maybe I'm, j- I'm just pulling the numbers out of the air, puff adamite in three days because of the cytotoxin. So it's vulnerable for a shorter period of time. So this is all amazing stuff. And it brings me to another little thought. Venoms vary. I've just said the juvenile's got slightly different venom to the adult. They vary ontogenetically like that. So um, if antivenom is produced from adults, then if you're bitten by a juvenile, they might not cover all bases. But there's also things like variation in geographical variation in venom, where a snake, snake A, is feeding on lizards on this side of its range, but the same species on the other side of its range is eating birds. I haven't even got onto cardiotoxins and nephritis protoxins and all the rest of them.
0: So how many people die from snake bites every year?
1: The figure of snake bite fatalities is normally put between 94 and 138,000 people a year. And we're probably up at the upper upper, uh, level now. Now, it's hard to determine because we have births, deaths and marriages and you can't just disappear very easily in the West without records and if you die generally um there'll be a death certificate but that's not the case obviously in the developing world and a lot of people bitten in villages don't want to go to the sterile hosp- western hospital a long distance away because they want to stay with their family i suppose in a way it's a bit like if you're terminal cancer you'd rather be with your family and friends in familiar surroundings because you accept you're, you're going to die rather than in a white coated hospital or something like that you know that's that's the preference some people would take and somebody who is okay they've been bitten by a venomous snake and they they really think they're going to die maybe they'd prefer to stay at home than not make the journey and be and die on their own in you know in, in the hospital because their family can't afford to come with them and this is a mindset that's i think it's quite common and so we don't always know about all the snake bites and they're also when when snake bites are recorded in hospitals in developing countries often it's snake bite whether it's venomous or non-venomous and if they record poisonings then sometimes it's a poisoning whether it whether it's oral poisonous berries or mushrooms or a snake bite so so it's the data's only as good as what's being recorded but we think we're maximum around one hundred thirty eight thousand. very few of those deaths are in Europe or the United States or in Australia? I mean, Australia is always oh, the land with more highly venomous snakes than anywhere else. The top ten venomous snake—it's argumentative whether they've got the top ten—but but the point is that there are a lot of highly venomous snakes there. But Very few deaths because of their excellent healthcare system and the Flying Doctor service and the production of antivenoms and all the rest of this. That that, that Australia might lose three two to three people a year. In nineteen eighty five, I think it was, they lost they they had a I think they lost eight because they were you starting to use it was a different therapy they were using and it, it turned out to be a bad idea with brown snake bites. But it's very rare to dive a snake. If you dive a snake bite in Australia, you'll probably be on the front page of the Australian newspaper, it's that rare. Now, looking at figures for, for developing countries, um Latin America is probably about five thousand deaths a year. Africa, sub Saharan Africa is somewhere around about 15, 20,000. The Middle East and North Africa, 100, 200. Asia, up to 100,000 deaths a year. It's massive. Now, these figures are the deaths. And those people die and they're mourned, they're buried and they're mourned. But that's not all of snake bites. A lot of people are bitten by snakes that that, say the cytotoxins that lead to amputation of a limb, or they may have um, had anoxia. They may have been unconscious for a while and not breathing and then been resuscitated and have, have suffered brain damage. These are survivors but they're not really surviving, they're living with a living death then because of the fact that what the snake has done to them has taken away what they did before. Very often the breadwinner in the family, imagine there's a really, really important um, film called Minutes to Die which emphasises all of this, but imagine if you're a poor family and you've got five goats and a member of the family, the breadwinner or one of the children is bitten by a snake and you, you sell the goats to get the money to get them to hospital to possibly save them. They may not survive, um, but if they do survive, they may not have they may lose a limb or something, um, and that'll alter their chances of being able to work or marry and things like this, which are knock on effects. And now the family doesn't have five goats and actually has a mouth to feed that it can't afford, so there's it's it's snake that can happen. It's been estimated that 400,000 people a year are, are permanently disabled by a snake bite. So add that to 138, and you're, 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 you're over half a million people a year. And for a long time, this was a neglected tropical disease. And it is a disease because there is a cure, antivenom. And a lot of the big Western biopharma companies have pulled out of producing antivenom. There are still companies producing antivenom around the world, and in my opinion, the, the heroes are the Institute of Claudio Picado at the University of San Jose in Costa Rica. That's not a biopharma company. That's a university research department, and they produce antivenoms, not just for Costa Rica, not just for Latin America, but for some countries in Africa, for some countries in Asia, and also they produce a Taipan antivenom for us in New Guinea. So they're the heroes in my opinion. But snakebite is, is a massive thing. But equally, while snakes are busy killing people, they're also saving people um, because of the, the the fact that they are the best rodent traps you can get. And if you've been in Asia and seen the amount of rat damage to the rice crop, it's like crop circles. It's massive. A lot is lost to rodents in the in the rice paddies. And then in the mills afterwards, you've got rats urinating on grain that's going to go for human consumption. So you've got the problems of things like wheels disease or, you know, transmittable diseases to humans. It's snakes that are actually the best rodent catchers. They are the best. And living in paddy fields, they're eating a lot of them. So it's weighing up the number of people snakes kill with the number of people snakes potentially save as uh, vermin uh, exterminators.
0: You said there about snakes have this important role as eating rats, but um, what other role do snakes play in the environment?
1: Nobody wants a jigsaw with a piece missing, and the snake is part of, a, of the, the, the food web, the food chain. It is a predator. It's also prey itself. Quite a few things eat snakes. It fulfills a part in the ecology just the same as anything else would. If you were to remove, well, they, a lot of in in parts of Southeast Asia where they've collected lots and lots of snakes for the um, snake restaurants, they do have big rodent problems because the 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 main predator of the rodents has gone. And if you remove the predator, something as fast breeding as rodents is are, are just going to the population is going to explode exponentially. So uh, they they really important part of the ecology like anything else
0: so if you've got all these snakes eating um, rodents and pests and things like that are there any vegetarian snakes
1: there's a piece of video somewhere on the internet i've seen it of identified the snake as as um an australian whip snake which is a venomous snake that feeds on rodents and lizards and it's going over There's there's a load of brush that's been pulled to one side as they've cleared somewhere and there's what look like olives or grapes i think they're olives actually on this bush and the snake's mooching around it, flicking its tongue and it's jerking around. It's clearly interested in something. And that tells me it's, it's either following the trail of prey or a female. And then it starts tugging and it eats, manages to pull one of these olives or whatever it is off off, and and, and swallows it. And people are like, no, a vegetarian snake. No, 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 no. It's, thinks it's eating something else i would say that there's been a rodent on there running around scampering around urinating and the snake has tracked that down and it finds something with a lot of rodent urine in and it smells like rodent therefore it is a rodent when we maintain snakes in captivity we sometimes trick them into eating something we want them to eat by scenting it with something they'd rather have and so they they're, they're very chemosensory And that's that's their primary sense. And so if it smells like a rodent, it is a rodent. There was, um, and I'm a uh, a celebrity, many years ago, the lead singer from Happy Mondays. He had to put his hand into several holes. And the one hole he put his hand in, there were some rats, and he's feeling around for stars. And he pulled his hand out. And then the next hole he got to stick his hand in and got carpet pythons in. Oh, I knew it was going to, he got bitten do it the other way around. He, his hand had been on the rat. It smells like a rat. It is a rat.
0: And oh, we're just thinking of the senses there as well, because we know they use their forked tongues, now. will use that to sort of taste the air and, and pick up where the prey is. But there was also some news research that came out recently where they've now f- found that snakes appear to be able to hear sound through the air, um, whereas previously we thought they detected it through their jaw on the floor.
1: Yes, we did, um, because the... The three bones in your ear that give you uh, hearing are actually part of the lower jaw in in a snake. And because it's on the ground, we do think they detect vibrations. But certain airborne sounds may well create vibrations. And we don't really know enough about snake hearing. We've we've always said snakes have got poor eyesight and, and they're deaf to airborne sounds. But those are sort of statements that were made decades ago. And as we learn more, we determine that's not true. Some snakes have got excellent vision. Binocular vision tree snakes are able to sneak up on camouflaged lizards that I can't see. They're just very, very good at it. And, again, hearing will have evolved to suit the lifestyle of a particular snake. And some may have decent hearing, but it's not hearing as we know it, Jim. There's also another sense we should touch on, which is the ability to sense infrared heat. We're warm-blooded, so it's no good us having those receptors because all we go, oh, there's oh no, it's me. But with us there are there are three families of snakes that have evolved heat receptors independently because they are not warm-blooded animals, cold-blooded, but of course a snake's blood could be warmer than ours if it's sitting in the sun and cooking. So so cold-blooded, warm-blooded aren't aren't great terms, but you know what I mean. In Pythons and Boas, these they're called pits, and they're arranged in a series of little slashes along the lip scales, both the upper and lower jaw. If you look at a photograph of a reticulated python, they're very obvious. It's even got them on the rostral scale at the front. Very, very obvious. Whereas in, So the pythons and boas, they're, they're unrelated families that evolved in different parts of the, of the world. The other group are the pit vipers, rattlesnakes and their kin, and they have a, a couple of large, round, forward-facing orifices in front of the eye but behind the nostril and down a little bit and they face forward and when you look at a a rattlesnake from the front you might think the nostrils they're not the nostrils are further forward and they face sideways backwards if anything slightly but these are forward facing because it's picking up it's it's picking up heat on both of them and where they overlap it's able to work out distance and so it makes a snake or any other pit viper, remarkably accurate in the total dark, as I know to my cost. They they are very, very accurate for locating prey. So being a cold-blooded animal feeding on warm-blooded animals, this is an obvious wonderful adaptation.
0: So what are some of the biggest threats to snakes?
1: Biggest threats to snakes, there are many. Let's leave out natural threats like natural predators because that's that's the law of the jungle. That's what's supposed to happen. Snakes are prey just as they're predators. Obviously, the skin trade is, is, a, is a big threat, over-collection and, and so forth. Habitat destruction, fragmentation, and alteration, those are three different things. You either destroy a habitat or you fragment it so that the species that are living in the fragments, the individuals can't get together, or you alter it in some way, changing primary rainforest to plantation or something like that. Collection uh, for medicines of suspicious value, uh, such as drinking a gallbladder of a snake in um a glass of whiskey or red wine every day for 30 days for lowered libido snakes got the same number of gallbladders as we have one and they they won't survive without it there was some time ago there were uh, there was there were snakes being sold into the pet trade in uk from asia and they were dying soon after people had purchased them and a vet did uh, an autopsy and found it didn't have a gallbladder and the The guy who was shipping them was he knew under which scale to make a little slit to take out the gallbladder to sell separately. then he sold a snake on i mean yeah i don't need to say any more about that i don't think but there there are an awful lot of um of of threats to snakes in um snake populations and especially island snakes they're they're very threatened because if you, if you change the habitat on an island to the detriment of the snake species or any other island species, it's very much harder for the population to re establish, especially if it's some distance from the mainland. And I'm quite concerned about a very little snake called Ogmodon vitianus. It's an illapid, it's a venomous snake, but it's harmless to humans. It's very tiny, it eats earthworms, we think. And it's only found on Viti Levu in Fiji, in Fiji, it's the only island it's on. And, and it's under great threat from pigs rooting it up and eating it and habitat destruction and so forth. That snake is not really closely related to anything until you get to the Solomon Islands. I mean, that's a big distance, so that's a particular one. Active persecution, people just killing snakes because they're snakes and some religions sort of, you know, the, the snakes are seen as, as evil in, in uh Christiano Judaism possibly snakes are are not seen as as beneficial in other religions. Um, in Buddhism, they they are, but some people just kill snakes because they're snakes, and that is if it's a crime. Uh, the illegal pet trade. The rarer something is, the more valuable it is, and therefore potentially more people are going to risk getting caught to, to catch them and, and smuggle them and make a profit. The trouble with the, with the illegal pet trade is that the, the fines do not fit the crime. Um, people who make a living out of this, if they get caught, they get let off with quite a, a small fine, uh, whereas, you know, and, and it's almost worth it because they, they'll make that money back. Rattlesnake roundups in the United States, why those are still going on in the 21st century is beyond me. Because they catch the rattlesnakes, they're doing an enormous amount of damage collecting them to the animals that are still living in those habitats, like pulling gasoline down burrows and driving everything out, and and it's seen it's 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 seen as entertainment, and you can go and see somebody will see how many um, rattlesnakes they stuff into a sack in thirty seconds, or they'll get into a, a, a sleeping bag with so many rattlesnakes, and all these really silly things, and then there's the 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 killing of the rattlesnakes and the eating of the rattlesnakes and, and it, it just i i find difficulty understanding how in the 20 21st century as a civilized people we can do something so barbarous because there's no absolutely no need to do that
0: thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was herpetologist professor mark o'shea talking about snakes his fascinating new book snakes of the world a guide to every family is out now the latest issue of BC Science Focus magazine is now available. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.